gastroenterology and nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the December 2011 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. The first article is a short communication entitled Biochemical Parameters and Anthropometry Predict NAFLD in Obese Children by Matthias and colleagues. These authors have created a formula by which to predict the risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in obese prepubertal children. Using data from 56 obese 10-year-olds, they created a model combining the child's waist-to-height ratio, measures of insulin resistance, including oral glucose tolerance, serum adiponectin, and alanine aminotransferase. They correlated these data with the MRI assessment of hepatic fat in each child and were able to generate a scoring system that was accurate in predicting NAFLD defined as an MRI-determined hepatic fat content greater than 5.5%. Even without adiponectin in the model, the discrimination accuracy was very good. The authors conclude that, as is possible in adults, pediatric physicians can use easily obtained physical and biochemical measurements to identify obese children at highest risk of NAFLD and avoid more expensive and risky studies such as liver biopsy and MRI. There were two invited reviews in this issue. The first is entitled, Is Cow's Milk Harmful to a Child's Health? by Agostoni and Turk. These authors reviewed published studies addressing current concerns about the long-term use of cow's milk in infants and children. It not only evaluates concerns that are legitimate, milk-associated iron deficiency, lactose intolerance, and milk protein sensitivity, but also several issues that are current but a bit on the fringe regarding the negative impact of cow's milk, such as autism, type 1 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and cancer. It won't be giving any, away any punchlines to state that the evidence for cow's milk being associated with the autism spectrum of disorders, type 1 diabetes, and cancer is not supported by much scientific evidence. This is a good read with good references on current controversies that should provide talking points to pediatricians, clinical nutritionists, and pediatric gastroenterologists. The second invited review is entitled From the Tongue to the Gut by Negri, Morini, and Greco. Understanding of the physiology of human taste has expanded in the last decade as a consequence of developments in genetics and molecular biology. It has been recognized that taste receptors are present not just on the tongue, but in the gut and the brain. The role of taste receptors in various human responses to food is likely much more complex than just the sensory input to the brain from the tongue and nose during chewing and swallowing. The authors of this review suggest that taste receptors possibly mediate gut motor and absorptive functions. The authors have nicely reviewed the physiology of taste sensation and have speculated on the possible roles of non-lingual receptors in both functional and organic GI disease. The first original article in Hepatology and Nutrition is entitled, Bovine Lactoferrin Can Be Taken Up by the Human Intestinal Lactoferrin Receptor and Can Exert Bioactivities, by Lonerdahl and colleagues. 
Human lactoferrin, an iron-binding protein, is the second most abundant protein in human milk, with numerous biological activities. These authors investigated the possibility that bovine lactoferrin could be added to infant formula, with the ultimate goal of providing the benefits of this protein to formula-fed infants. They compared bovine lactoferrin, purified in their laboratory, commercially available bovine lactoferrin, and human lactoferrin with respect to resistance to digestion and also evaluated its ability to bind to the lactoferrin receptor in CACO2 cells in culture. They assessed the ability of the three preparations to stimulate cell proliferation, cell differentiation, interleukin-18 secretion, and the expression of transforming growth factor B1. They found that both bovine lactoferrin preparations bound iron and partially resisted digestion when dissolved in either buffered saline or infant formula. The bovine lactoferrin preparations bound to CACO2 cells with an avidity equal to human lactoferrin. Both bovine preparations promoted cell proliferation and differentiation to an extent similar to human lactoferrin, but the effects were not seen when the lactoferrin protein was fully saturated with iron. All lactoferrins increased the expression of transforming growth factor beta-1 and interleukin-18 secretion with the highest results associated with the commercial bovine lactoferrin preparation. The authors speculate that commercial bovine lactoferrin should be biologically active in infant formula and should be able to exert some of the bioactivities of human lactoferrin. The accompanying short commentary by Batya and colleagues puts the issues surrounding the importance of lactoferrin and this paper's findings into perspective very nicely. The next article is entitled, Widening Spectrum of Liver Angiosarcoma in Children, by Ackerman and colleagues. Liver hemangiomas are vascular tumors which are usually diagnosed in the first months of life. Although they carry hematologic and cardiovascular complications in the very young, they are considered benign histologically and are thought to regress with time. Histologic studies suggest that one histologic subtype, type 2, hemangioendothelioma, is similar to angiosarcoma and may have a much less favorable long-term prognosis. The authors described five girls with type 2 hemangioendothelioma of the liver. Three of the cases presented with multinodular hemangioma and typical cardiac and pulmonary complications. Although the tumors regressed in these three children, all three experienced tumor relapse one to two years after diagnosis with fatal outcome between two and a half and five years of age. The other two children presented a bit later between ages two and three. In one, resection was followed by relapse in the remaining liver, lung metastases, and death. Whole tumor histology showed both type 1 and type 2 lesions. In the other child, tumor biopsy showed type 2 lesions. She underwent liver transplantation and is alive without tumor recurrence three years after transplant. The authors warn clinicians that careful follow-up is required to detect late recurrence in infants with multinodular liver hemangiomas and that vascular liver tumors occurring after infancy are likely to be malignant. The authors suggest that in type 2 hemangioendothelioma that has not metastasized, liver transplantation may be preferable to surgical tumor resection. 
The commentary accompanying this article by Barbara Wilhaber nicely sets out the histologic differences between benign hemangioendothelioma and type 2 hemangioendothelioma of infants and discusses prognosis in all of the liver vascular tumors. The next article is entitled Toll-Like Receptor MRNA Expression in Liver Tissue from Patients with Biliary Atresia by Saito and colleagues. Host immunological reactions to unknown ligands via the toll-like receptor cascades may trigger the inflammatory destruction of biliary epithelium that is the hallmark of biliary atresia. In this study, the authors obtained liver tissue from 49 patients, 19 with biliary atresia, 21 with cholelocal cyst, and 9 with other liver disease. Biliary atresia tissue samples were classified as being early if they had been obtained before portoenterostomy and late if obtained after portoenterostomy. Of the early biliary atresia group, those who progressed to liver transplantation were designated LT and were considered a subgroup for analysis. The authors found no correlation between toll-like receptor mRNA expression level and age in any of the children with biliary atresia. They did find that toll-like receptor 8 mRNA, which encodes the receptor for single-stranded RNA, was significantly higher in the early biliary atresia group compared with non-biliary atresia patients. Within the biliary atresia group, mRNA levels of toll-like receptors 2 and 8 were significantly higher before portoenterostomy than after. The authors found significantly higher mRNA expression of toll-like receptors 3 and 7 in those who went on to transplant. They concluded that innate immune responses were different in patients with biliary atresia as compared to other hepatobiliary diseases, and that determination of selected toll-like receptor mRNA expression levels in the liver at the time of Kasai portoenterostomy might assist in predicting the prognosis of patients with biliary atresia. There is a commentary on this article by Muraji, an expert in this field that puts the findings in historical perspective. The first original gastroenterology article is entitled Medication Knowledge, an Initial Step in Self-Management for Youth with Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Fishman and colleagues. Adolescents with inflammatory bowel diseases must start to manage their own health as they transition to adult care settings. Since knowledge of medication is an early step in this process, the authors tried to identify the factors affecting acquisition of medication knowledge in adolescents with IBD. They questioned 294 consecutive patients with IBD older than 10 years of age about their medications, doses, and adverse effects. The answers were compared with information from the child's medical record. They found that 95% of patients could name their medications, but that only 54% got the dose right. Of the patients receiving biologics, 88 could identify the medication, but only 50% could report either the dosage or the timing. Of patients on immunomodulator therapy, 94% could name the medicine, and 68% reported the correct dose. Sex, disease type, or disease duration did not affect the patient's grasp of drug name or dose. Statistically, the older patients had no better grasp of their medications than the younger patients, although there was a trend in that direction. Less than 32% of the patients could report a single major medication side effect. This study reminds us to check up on our patients' knowledge of what they are taking and why. 
A comparative study in adult IBD patients would have been helpful here. Perhaps the deficiencies in medication knowledge are found in patients of all ages, not just teens and preteens. The next GI article is entitled Sequential Therapy versus Tailored Triple Therapies for Helicobacter pylori Infection in Children by Bontems and colleagues. In a prospective, open-labeled, multi-center study, these authors compared sequential versus triple therapy treatment on the eradication rate for H. pylori infection in children. H. pylori, either a tensile treatment, cecillin for five days, and then clarithromycin and metronidazole for the remaining five days with omeprazole throughout, or a seven-day triple therapy consisting of amoxicillin and clarithromycin plus omeprazole in cases of a clarithromycin-susceptible strain or metronidazole if the strain was clarithromycin-resistant. Eradication was assessed by 13C urea breath test. The intention to treat eradication rate was 76.9%, with no significant difference between sequential and triple therapy. The per-protocol eradication rate was 84.6%, with eradication rate tending to be higher using sequential treatment. The difference in eradication only became significant in children with strains susceptible to both clarithromycin and metronidazole. Both intention to treat and per-protocol eradication rates were significantly lower with sequential treatment in clarithromycin-resistant than in clarithromycin-sensitive strains. The authors conclude that sequential treatment is effective for eradicating H. pylori in children with clarithromycin-sensitive strains and that sequential treatment should be used as first-line therapy only in areas with a low clarithromycin resistance rate. The next study is entitled Exploring Potential Non-Invasive Biomarkers in Eosinophilic Esophagitis in Children by Subarao and colleagues. The temptation to perform many endoscopies in patients with eosinophilic esophagitis is great. It often seems to be the only way to follow them. There is definitely a need for non-invasive tools to direct the management of this disease. These authors looked at three non-invasive biomarkers, serum interleukin-5, serum eosinophil-derived neurotoxin, and stool eosinophil-derived neurotoxin, and tried to correlate them with disease phenotype and activity over a period of 24 weeks. The first 12 weeks, the children were on steroids, and the subsequent 12 weeks, they were off steroids. There were 60 subjects with EE and 20 controls with normal upper endoscopy. Serum IL-5, eosinophil-derived neurotoxin, and stool eosinophil-derived neurotoxin were measured at baseline and every four weeks in children with EE and at baseline only in controls. Baseline serum eosinophil-derived neurotoxin levels were higher in EE than in controls. There was a significant decrease in serum eosinophil-derived neurotoxin from baseline to week 4, and then a rebound from week 4 to week 12 in EE patients. Serum eosinophil-derived neurotoxin levels remained stable after week 12. Serum IL-5 and stool eosinophil-derived neurotoxin levels did not differ between controls and EE patients. The results suggest that serum eosinophil-derived neurotoxin may be a suitable marker for EE diagnosis and potentially a measure of response to therapy. There is a lot of work to be done on this one yet, including comparative data on patients with peptic esophagitis. 
The next article is entitled, Abdominal Pain Predominant Functional Gastrointestinal Diseases in Children and Adolescents, Prevalence, Symptomatology, and Association with Emotional Stress by Devana Rayana and colleagues. Little is known about the prevalence of functional gastrointestinal diseases in developing countries. The authors assessed the prevalence of abdominal pain predominant functional gastrointestinal disease, its associated factors and symptoms in 2,163 Sri Lankan school children ages 10 to 16 using a validated self-administered questionnaire. Functional gastrointestinal diseases were diagnosed by the Rome 3 criteria. Mean age was about 13 and a half years. 12.5% of the children had at least one pain-predominant functional gastrointestinal disease. Irritable bowel was found in 4.9%, functional dyspepsia in 2.5%, functional abdominal pain in 4.4%, and abdominal migraine in 1%. A small number of children had two diagnoses. Extraintestinal symptoms were more common among affected children. Pain-predominant functional gastrointestinal diseases were more frequent in girls and those exposed to stressful events. Prevalence negatively correlated with age. The authors concluded that pain-predominant functional gastrointestinal diseases affect 12.5% of children ages 10 to 16 years and constitute a significant health problem in Sri Lanka, as in more developed countries. The problem here is that the selection of school children for study may have selected a group with higher socioeconomic status, so that the true prevalence in the entire population cannot really be projected from this data. The next article is entitled, Value of Information in Non-Focal Colonic Biopsies by Badizadigan and Thompson. These authors performed a conceptual value of information analysis of 100 sequential colonoscopies, including 770 total biopsy specimens. The diagnostic value of each biopsy was evaluated based on its order of appearance in the model and its overall contribution to the pathological classification of the disease. The authors state in their introduction that current practice standards for pediatric GI biopsies provide no guidance on sampling strategy for non-focal biopsies in suspected inflammatory bowel diseases, and that this lack results in the collection of a non-standardized number of samples and sampling sites that vary significantly by clinician and institution. Their study confirms this statement. The authors found that present practice adds little to no diagnostic value over more cost-effective protocols, such as a fewer biopsies overall or fewer specimens with pooled regional biopsies. They suggest that pediatric GI clinicians should explore alternative strategies, such as the left-right pooled biopsy protocol common in adult GI practice, or perhaps a more conservative four-region protocol covering major anatomic landmarks in the colon for non-focal pediatric colonic biopsies. This sounds like good sense to me. This concludes the JPGN podcast for December 2011. You have probably received the invitation to participate in the 30th anniversary of JPGN by submitting your views on the most important articles published over the years since issue one. Send your selections and comments to either Mel Heyman, North American Editor, at mhayman@peds.ucsf.edu, or David Bransky, European Editor, at bransky at hadassah.org.il. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Happy New Year.
Thank you.